0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Cable. Our guest today is Elizabeth Ellis, here to talk about her new book, The Great Power of Small Nations, Indigenous Diplomacy in the Gulf South. The book explores the history of small but powerful Native American nations, that shaped the development of the Gulf South between the 17th and 19th centuries. Ellis is Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University. Her collaborative work includes the Reclaiming Stories Project, an interdisciplinary team of tribal cultural experts, artists, and academics dedicated to researching early Miami and Peoria culture, as well as the Unsettled Refuge Working Group and the Indigenous Borderlands of North America Research Project, among other scholarly ventures. Elizabeth Ellis, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies.
1: Thank you so much for having me this afternoon. I'm delighted to be here with you.
0: Good to have you here. Well, before we discuss the book, can you talk a little bit about your background as a scholar and what brought you to this point in your career?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, So I sometimes say that I stumbled uh, kind of backwards into this field. I always knew that I really cared about history. Um, I, as a Native uh, child in the nineteen nineties, I didn't see a lot of Native American history covered in the education that I grew up with. Um, I grew up on the East Coast in New York, and so for me, outside of Oklahoma, which is where my um, family and my tribal nation is based. I just wasn't seeing a lot of stories that really seemed like the experience of my pupils and my family. Um, And I ended up pursuing the project that I'm pursuing and going on to be a historian myself when I was living in New Orleans um, and had the opportunity to work with the Quanachan tribe, which is a tribal community in southern Louisiana, um, on their federal recognition project. as native folks were often taught that you're kind of obligated to the people whose land you live on, and to be responsible to the native communities near you, and so working with them and coming to understand how much of their history was also not being told sort of led me down this this path to want to go write and tell um, native histories. So I, I certainly didn't set out to become a an academic historian, but I, I love it here now, and I. Mm. <laughs> I <can see> it. <laughs>
0: Sure, sure. So, so how do you see your, your present book fitting into or, or intervening in the existing literature on the Native South?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, I think there's been a really, I'm definitely building off of a really terrific and robust literature. Um, certainly, you know, first kind of generation of scholars, people like Rita Perdue and then Micheline Pence-Tubby and Kathleen Duval, Lots of folks have um, laid the framework for me to be able to be at a starting point where I think we can say we know that Native histories matter and they're an important part of how we understand the development of the South, um, both in the sort of colonial and early American era and then in the 19th century. Um, and I, in particular, am really building off of the work of Gwendolyn Midlow Hall and Dan Usner, Um, and uh, again, Micheline Pensatabi writes about Choctaws, but I think that the the scholarship of the field has moved um, from a real emphasis on uh, Native power to kind of looking at um, the way that Native nations more specifically shape the colonial experience across different kinds of empires. And so I'm very excited to um, sort of try and, and tie together some of the Louisiana literature and some of the literature that's been really strong on Creeks, Choctaws, Chickasaws, um, and to, to kind of move forward from, from there.
0: So can you talk about your use of the term petite nation as as well as how you think about what constitutes a nation? Moreover, how, how is this different from the way we might use the word nation today?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, so I end up, throughout the book using a French term to talk about the many smaller nations who were part of, or who lived in the lower Mississippi Valley in the 17th and 18th century. When French um, colonists arrived in the region in the 1680s and settled in 1699, they found this incredible multitude of smaller native polities um, and they couldn't really even make sense of the tremendous diversity of peoples who were there. And so to talk about everyone who wasn't part of a larger nation, they just used small nations or petite nation. I use, in, um, and you'll hear me say it, so sorry to my, my French speakers, a very Anglicized version of this which is petite nations, in part because I capitalize it and I'm using the term a little bit differently. Um, I've adapted it to say, rather than just indicating that these are smaller groups, um, I'm using this as a blanket term to talk about all of these different uh, nations in the region. Again, there are about 40 distinct polities. Collectively, at the end of the 17th century, if you took all of these nations together, that's between about 17,000 and 20,000 people all in. So these nations could have 350 people, they could have 3,500 people in them. Uh, It really fluctuates over the course of the 18th century. Um, And it also depends on what the priorities of those nations are. So petite nations is kind of a, a lumping term here, which of course is, you know, lumping terms are never perfect. But what it does is it lets me gesture broadly at all of the people who don't, um, who aren't part of these larger native nations. Um, And I want to make two kind of subsequent points here, I think one of which is um, historiographical and one of which is more contemporary. I think because of the influence of Richard White's um, The Middle Ground and a lot of the scholarship on coalescence in the southeast, I'm thinking of really important work like Mike Green's right on the invention of the Creek Nation, Josh Piker's work. I think we have this tendency to assume that if nations are small, like in White's model, the shattered fragments or remnants, broken bits of other polities um, is the natural is sort of the natural explanation for why people are small. Um, and to assume that the natural order of progress is that nations should form larger and larger and more centralized governments. I think this is like a real hangover of stadial theory that sort of suggests there's like a natural political order. And anything that diverges from that is somehow, you know, evidence of European rupture or decline or of the endurance of the Mississippi shatter zone. Um, And in fact, these small nations, this is one of the arguments that I make in the book, is that these nations worked really hard to remain small and to retain village level autonomy. Um, And I assume we'll talk in a minute about some of how that works. But these nations are making intentional political decisions to remain small, um, and not to centralize their governments. In most southeastern towns, and this is true for peoples who will become part of Creek Nation, part of Choctaw Nation, these larger confederacies that we're more familiar with, in most cases, the town and local level government is the most powerful. So some um, larger nations have sort of organized um Confederacies and councils that you know coordinate between different divisions of nations and different towns at higher levels, but real authority rests at the local level. And petite nations is just like a more extreme version of that same kind of um, model that prioritizes local. Um, governance. The second point, and this is the contemporary one, um, is that I think it's really important that we do use the word nation when we talk about um, Native nations in the historic past, even if they don't look like nation states as we imagine them in the present. And this is true for two reasons. Um, the first of which is that in if we take this, we're using European language here, if we take in sort of 17th and 18th century French perspective, uh, the way that French people thought about nation or nation is often just a group of people who are um, governed together, who live in a similar place, who share cultural and ethnic ties. It's not the kind of formal, hard-bordered um ideology of like modern European nations with exclusionary citizenship and very clean boundaries that we often think of today. I think the other really important point is that as Native nations today try and litigate for tribal sovereignty and enforce their right to be able to govern their peoples and their lands on the premises that they were, in fact, nations before the creation of the United States, which is another nation, it's important that we emphasize that early Europeans and Native people themselves. saw each other as uh, governing polities and understood the validity of each other's sovereignty. Um, I think that there's a real way that later idea ideologies of nationhood that are kind of based on these exclusionary logics of citizenship and hard boundaries have been projected back in time and I think that that's kind of confused a little bit of this this early modern world both in the south um, and across the Atlantic in this this earlier time period so I yeah I'm sticking to my guns with uh, nations and I think that 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 works for me here
0: well thanks for that clarification so in chapter one you you write that Native peoples of the southeast by the late 17th century had created a new order in the region in which refugees and outsiders and other people were, were welcome and native people's security against increasing threats from without was, was assured. And as you stated earlier, um, village level autonomy was, was, uh, prized. So how did this new order come to be?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in the, In the south of the uh, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, we often think of the kind of proliferance of the Mississippian um, political order. So in a lot of places, this looks like the consolidation of sort of larger theocratic governing structures, um, peoples who build big centralized societies, in some cases, even urban. Um, I think we talk about the influence of Cahokia, which was one of these really big urban modern city-states in North America, up in Illinois, um, and the diffusion of ideas and technology and art from these kind of Mississippian societies. But across the Southeast, we also see um, the continuance of lots of people living in smaller polities, um, much more like what we'll look at with the petite nations in the 17th and 18th century who are sporadically coming together to build earth and architecture to reconvene. Uh, and some of this Mississippian political order, like the small organization of peoples holds over into the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. And some of the old Mississippian order really breaks apart or um, shatters as Robbie Etheridge has described it, you know, the kind of breaking apart of these older political orders and the formulation of a new geopolitical landscape in the Southeast. So this is already happening. And then, of course, in the 16th century, increasing in the 17th century, you European incursions and early settlements along the Gulf Coast and along the eastern seaboard begin to introduce new um, biology or rather new germs, um, new animals, and new kind of political and economic influences into the southeast. And so by the time we get to the beginning of the, or the late 17th century, beginning of the 18th century, Native people, um, both people who are part of these petite nations and people who are part of groups that will become um Choctaws and Creeks, as well as Chickasaws, are all dealing with this confluence of political orders in transition and in motion. Um, and I think the two the two really big phenomenon of this this era I'm thinking here like 1680 to right around 1710 is the rise of the trade and enslaved indigenous people across the southeast that really begins to escalate in the um, 1680s and 1690s on the Gulf Coast, a lot of that market and that trafficking of captive native people is oriented towards Charleston, some of it is going to Virginia, Um, and then also the arrival of French settlers who are moving into the lower Mississippi Valley Um, beginning in 1699. But of course, there's French presence already um, in Illinois and New France. And so influences long before there's flesh and blood people. So the folks who are living in this region um, are even before European colonists begin to really set foot on the ground. They're experiencing the uh, impacts of um, European colonization elsewhere in the continent, as well as this political order of the native world that's in the process of changing. And what this means in practice is that there are a ton of new migrants who come to the lower Mississippi Valley at the end of the 17th and in the early 18th century. And some of these people are fleeing violence in their homelands, maybe in the Ohio River Valley, but others of them are just moving to look for new opportunities as they continue the migrations that followed the end of, or the dissolution of the Mississippian political order. Okay, this is all really important because one of the things that um, smaller nations do to adapt to this changing world full of new um, migrants and immigrants is that they set up uh, political structures that both prioritize this local town level autonomy that I talked about just a minute ago and that makes space for new migrants, immigrants, and critically peoples who are arriving in crisis. And I term, when you look at maps, or when you talk, look at the French records, um, or even the archaeology, you can see that there are, Autonomous, um, culturally different groups of people living right next to each other. And so what I mean is you have towns that are within several hours walk of one another um, of different nations living not far apart with big buffer zones between, but truly right next to each other. And what we can think of as like multinational trade hubs or what I call multinational settlements. And these clustering of multiple nations helps people defend their territory, and it also enables um, kind of economic opportunities that wouldn't be there with a, a single national economy. And so, when when um, when native people are arriving in the Lower Mississippi Valley, maybe they're again fleeing violence, maybe they're coming for opportunities. These multinational settlements allow nations who arrive to either seek refuge as the entire nation together to join these multinational settlements as one more new nation Um, or the already existent ethnic diversity um, and linguistic diversity within these individual nations lets people adopt and take outsiders in. So what's really important here is that there's a structure that facilitates the immigration of people um, and the migration of people into the lower Mississippi valley and that isn't hard bordered like by ethnicity or language group. There's actually a trade language that everybody speaks called mobilian that lets people talk across um, different languages, and so you get in the the seventeenth century the proliferation of these multinational settlements that help folks defend against raiders, provide economic opportunities, and that are able to absorb the waves of newcomers who are coming either in crisis um, or who are migrating to seek new opportunities, and that creates a very diverse um, South.
0: Oh yeah. So so you've you've touched on this a little bit, but you you begin talking in more depth about French colonizers in chapter two, and interestingly about how at one point the center of French imperial Louisiana was actually one of these multinational clusters of settlements the one at Mobile, um, which is an example of indigenous incorporation of the French, not the other way around. So how and why after the turn of the 18th century did certain small nations incorporate French settlers into their multinational communities. And um, if you can also talk about how gender uh, works its way into the diplomatic mix here.
1: Yeah, Um, so when the French arrive in 1699 in the lower Mississippi Valley, Um, they're showing up right as the uh, War of Spanish Succession is about to kick off in Europe. That's from 1700 to 1713. And the reason that this is relevant is that this really sucks all of French funding um, away from this kind of new experimental venture on the Gulf Coast to fight, you know, England in Europe and um, across North America. And so that means that French, small groups of French arrivals, and I mean, literally just a couple hundred people in the first decade of the 18th century, show up on the Gulf Coast, and they're receiving very little support from metropolitan France. Like Supply ships are coming every couple of years at best. So they're a small number of people. They're super dependent upon their native allies. And they're showing up into this region that, again, is racked by slave trade violence, imperial competition, and this other kinds of destabilizing influences. So they're in pretty serious need of alliance and assistance, um, which means that living by themselves is not really a desirable outcome. For native people who are confronting the escalating slave trade and the same kind of violence, they see that French newcomers are coming with new weapons technology and critically more manpower uh, that can help them defend their people. So Capinans and Biloxis who are already living together in a multinational settlement near present day Biloxi, Mississippi, um, are the, some of the first to form an alliance with French newcomers in 1699. And they basically convinced the French to set up right alongside their village. In 1702, the French form a second settlement inland at Mobile. With Mobilians, for whom the town is named, Tahomes, Naniabas. The settlement will be joined by refugees from Florida from this same um, conflict and war between Spain and England, um, who are native people in northern Florida, like Chicados and Apalaches, who migrate and also join the settlement. So French settlers are actually a minority um, demographically within a larger native population and within these. Multinational settlement. So, the structure I was talking about just a minute ago of providing welcome and autonomous governance for new people who come into their homeland means that French people can go, they can live alongside their native allies at Mobile, rely on them for trade, for provisions, for other kinds of things, but they're not expected to cede governance to the Mobilians. So, they can govern themselves as they see fit. And this is basically where I see them incorporated as another. Um, kind of Native nation within a structure that already exists and that really facilitates their settlement on the Gulf Coast. And I think this is really important because we have a tendency in the South sometimes to think about Native people who are near colonial settlements as settlement Indians, as if... um, Native people are gravitating or flocking towards colonial centers, and there's a, an implication of dependency in that model. And here, I think we have a really different model where French people are dependent upon their Native nature. Native native neighbors and this is really important and um i love that you bring up the gender thing one of the things that really jumped to me about the french archives is when administrators are writing about basically having to be told that they have to treat native um women who are political leaders as political leaders uh because it's so hard for the french to see um women as powerful political actors in 17th century france um the kind of both family structures were very patriarchal with assumptions that men should be making financial and political decisions and um, kind of governing both their homes and their states. That's very much not the case in the lower Mississippi Valley, where women both have autonomy over homes and spaces, but also a tremendous amount of political leadership. And this is everything from women who are uh, sort of supreme political leaders of nations, non-binary, and uh, what We would think of today native country as like two spirit individuals, people who are non-binary native actors who are governing their nations and then also just women who show up to councils. And so when, for example, Anto Biscania, who's this Bayagula diplomat, is meeting with the governor of Mobile um, in the first decade of the 18th century, he has to tell the governor he goes ahead and he says, now you have to give my wife the same gifts that you're giving everyone else and you have to pay her the same honors. Basically, you idiot she's a political leader like you can't just <laughs> dismiss her because you see her as a woman and so there's there's actually really wonderful records emphasizing um, both the way that native people saw women as political leaders and how doofy they thought the french were for completely not understanding that women could also lead um, and play important political roles
0: gotcha okay thanks for that so so next in in the third chapter you you discussed the ways in which the, the Indian slave trade adversely affected groups, uh, such as the Tinsa and the Chitimacha. So can you talk a little bit about the reasons why even allies of the French came to be ensnared in their uh, slave trade?
1: Yeah, I think there's been really wonderful scholarship in recent years um, focusing on slavery in Indian country and also um, the importance of enslaved people um, in enslaved Indigenous people in the the larger story of Native America. So this this scholarship, my scholarship, really builds off of both Alan Galay um, and Christina Snyder's work in the in the Southeast, as well as Jennifer Spears' work on enslaved um, Native women in New Orleans. Basically, when the French show up again in that early 18th century, it's still the War of Spanish Succession. There's still very little investment. The land is tough. Um, you know, it's it's swampy. It's not easily um, farmed in super intensive ways by the french who arrive and so they're they're looking for labor basically they're looking for other people to do the hard manual labor that will create the infrastructure for new towns like um mobile which we just talked about and because there is this already existing traffic in native people French uh, settlers, even though uh, Indian slavery is not formally legalized in Lower Louisiana yet, they move to. Um, uh, enslave and to use captive native people basically as unfree domestic um, and and field labor, um, as well as really critically as like rowers, porters, people who are going to help the functioning of, of lower Louisiana. The first enslaved Africans uh, do not arrive in Louisiana until 1709. It's really not until the 1720s when large um, shipments of enslaved Africans Um, who've been trafficked across the Atlantic Ocean arrive. And so the French turn to um, the enslavement of native people to fuel the colony and to provide this this labor force. And to your question of how do allied people end up enslaved, uh, this chapter kind of traces two trajectories. The first of which is it follows a group called the Tensas. Um, And in the Tensas case, it basically argues that the violence and disruption of the slave trade means there are a lot of Tensa people who get taken captive, and some of them are gifted individually or sold in small numbers by other allies of French colonists to the colonists themselves. Um, So even if their people are technically allied, there are tents of women and children in particular who end up enslaved in the homes of French settlers. Um, And the other big phenomenon here is that in 1706, desperate for labor, the French government actually wages a war against the Chittimachas, who are a nation who remain in Louisiana and have endured to today um, to enslave Chittimacha people. Um, to use as the, the kind of, they become the backbone of the uh, enslaved labor force in, in the colony. And this is, you know, they, there's an, an incidence of violence in 1706 that they say is the reason for this, this war. But the, the real cause here is just the shortage of labor and them being so desperate to find uh, a reason to go to war with a local native population. And it's really not, between 1706 and 1718 is the real height of Indian slavery um, in French Louisiana. And it it continues in the period afterwards with enslaved chitimachas and Natchez people. It doesn't ever really die out, um, but it it becomes a vital economic part of the the development of the the early colony.
0: And and so I I meant to insert this into that sort of long and winding question, but um, you, you also mentioned that there's there's uh, sort of a thin uh, base of archival evidence to support um, what you're trying to talk about in this chapter. So how, how did you work around that problem of, of um,
1: yeah, sources? Thanks for that. One of the real problems, um, again, because of the kind of French gender ideologies and the way that these things are recorded, is that a lot of the people who are enslaved in Louisiana are women. Um there's actually a a really considerable amount of men as well. So it's not like there's a a shocking demographic, um, you know, majority of either men or women. But a lot of the women who are enslaved as well as children by French settlers um, are ultimately listed. The women are ultimately listed as their wives because they are sexually exploiting and and in many cases raping these women as well. And so the children they are producing from these families are in these first generations often recognized as legitimate children. There's not the kind of hereditary slavery model, um, in the, in this early period for indigenous enslaved people in Louisiana. And so there's actually all of this, uh, I can see in the records cause there's this church angst by, um, priests in the region who are very concerned about the phenomenon of French men, because indeed almost all of the first um, arrivals in Lower Louisiana were men, taking captive Native women um, and forcing them to labor in their homes, sexually reproducing with them. Um, they're concerned about the implications of this for the colony, both because of early French sort of Racial ideologies of contamination, or you know, cultural um, shift. They're they're afraid that all of these, what they call, um, what in English would be like half-breeds, are you know, going to be loyal to Indian nations instead of France. Um, but you can see the writing about this from missionaries who are concerned and baptismal records of the baptisms of these people who are sometimes just listed as Sauvage or Indian without any kind of specific national category, or sometimes they'll list the person's nation. And that helped me track both who was being trafficked in significant numbers into um uh, Mobile and then New Orleans, and also the some of the gendered ways that that is erased as someone suddenly becomes wife and is no longer labeled as a native person, even as they continue to um, be in these unfree contexts within French homes.
0: Hmm. Okay. So in chapters four and five, you you describe the the 1720s as sort of a I read this at least as sort of a pivot point or inflection point in relations between. French settlers and small nations. And um, you also talk about how the Natchez War uh, 1729 further sort of throws a wrench in the existing social and political order. So can you talk a little bit about that? What what seems like a very eventful, um, change-filled decade?
1: Oh yeah, there's a lot. That's a kind way of saying there's a lot going on that's that's smashed into those two chapters in terms of big political shifts yeah so louisiana is kind of completely transformed in many ways between 1718 and 1728 so from a crown colony that wasn't really um managed in an efficient way. Again, this war of Spanish succession really delays the investment in Louisiana. In 1718, the colony is given over to the management of John Law, who's a Scottish financier, and he creates the Company of the Indies. And Law dumps all this money into financing the expansion of Louisiana. And so this means both investment in shipping, tons of europeans um there's actually i mean not a lot of these people return and so don't don't think that this is the i'll tell you the total number in a minute but um he he facilitates the shipment of more than seven thousand europeans uh to the french colony this is from uh, a population that was just uh 400 french settlers in 1714 um by And almost 6,000 enslaved Africans over the course of the 1720s. So he and his company are dumping a ton of money into recruiting um, European migrants, um, into convincing the French government to ship uh, convicts from France to the colonies, um, and to really trying to prop up the expansion of Louisiana. Um, They do a really bad job with provisioning and logistics on the other end. So even though I told you there were just these incredible numbers of people, um, both enslaved and free, shipped to Louisiana, many, many people die and go home, and especially enslaved Africans who are um, deprioritized in terms of uh, resources and care. Um, By 1726, there are only 2,228 Europeans and 1,540 enslaved Africans and 229 enslaved Native Americans that we can easily see in the records. The numbers probably at least double that. and so that's still a really significant growth from only 400 in 1714. And as part of this boostery plan to pump up Louisiana as a, a destination for European colonists, a lot of the propaganda and a lot of the advertisements coming out of Louisiana suggest that petit nations, small nations and native peoples are either adoringly allied with Louisiana or they're on the verge of extinction. And often both things are the case at once, so that native nations are soon to disappear, the land will be clear for European settlement. And so this is such a wonderful colonial opportunity. And that really takes root, both in policy um, and in the perception of Louisiana. I think it's also part of why there's been this historiographical trend that suggests that, um, or rather, this, the way that some folks have written about Louisiana has suggested that small nations become kind of irrelevant by the 1720s, which I think is just sort of listening too much to this boostery um, propaganda as opposed to closely following the the stuff on the ground. Um, but this leads the the French government to deprioritize its relationships with small native nations. And this leads to a real tension and severing of relationships among many Native people and their French allies. And this includes everyone from folks like the Mobilians and Tahomes at Mobile, who I talked about just a minute ago, had really close economic and political relationships with their neighbors, um, to folks like the Natchez, uh, which the fifth chapter follows, who are a little bit more split. Natchez is actually really interesting because it's a multinational settlement. So in the early 1720s, it's both Natchez people and also a group of Tú and a group of Grigra. These are two separate nations who are living alongside Natchez. But the Natchez polity is politically divided. Um, So half the nation is very invested in relationships with um, English settlers um, and English uh, traders who are oriented to the east, Um, and about how the other half of the nation is really invested in alliances with the French. And so when the French join Natchez in a small settlement in 1716, and they're in a really expanding number of uh, French settlers in the 1720s as part of this, this wave of settlement, um, they don't behave as they're supposed to at these multinational settlements. So in general, if you are coming into one of these pre-existing settlements, um, Native nations, again, they don't expect to be able to govern you directly, but they do expect that you will res- respect shared resources like waters, lands, um, horse herds, you know, any kind of um, what we would think of as, as Native people, like non-human uh, relations or natural resources, however you want to think about it. Um, And the French absolutely don't do this. Like they show up and their goal in part here and part of this larger vision of Louisiana is they're gonna use African labor on this native land to create tobacco plantations. And they're gonna grow huge amounts of tobacco and that's gonna be you know, kind of a lucrative colonial export. And as soon as they start to push into Natchez territory, they're abusing African slaves, they're abusing Natchez women, Um, they're really harassing folks. That um, that creates really serious problems and conflict at the the site of multinational settlement, and not just people do everything in their power to give the French signs that they want them to leave and that they've overstayed their welcome. Um, they mark and cut and abuse their animals. They um, you know protest the expansion of French settlements into their fields, and the French simply will not listen. And this ultimately culminates in an extremely violent um, expulsion of French settlers in 1729. And I say expulsion, they expelled the French settlers by killing as many of them as they could, sending the rest of the French settlers who were formerly their neighbors and allies um, downriver to New Orleans. And this really forces the consolidation of the two um, oppositional Natchez parties because the behavior of the French has just been so bad that it's become clear to everyone it's intolerable. So the 1720s is a Big political shift moment, both in the creation of this boostery promise, you know, going to be a great, uh, very lucrative colony to this huge explosion in 1729, when um, the Natchez and the French come to blows, this war pulls in all of the native nations in the region. It's extremely bloody and it both ends lost tenure, um, as, controller, you know, as the person in charge of Louisiana, the colony reverts back to the crown. Um, the crown strips a huge amount of funding and it's kind of the curtailing of the trans shipping of enslaved Africans uh, to the colony. There's only one more uh, slave ship that arrives and that's in the 1740s after this point. So uh, the 1720s, you can kind of think of as this moment of huge colonial promise, booming of the economy, and then a real crash because they, Um, They devalue their native partners and think they're no longer important. And that's just not a viable way forward for Louisiana. Natchez resistance really checks um, French expansion in a meaningful way. And the big changes
0: continue into the middle third of the 18th century. So you write about this period, which included both Chickasaw and Choctaw wars, uh, Choctaw Civil War, as, as one of respectively imperial anxiety and imperial blunders. So how so?
1: Yeah, so I argue basically that the Natchez War doesn't kind of end. It's supposed to be 1729 to 1731, 1731, the French crown or the French uh, colonial administration says, all right, we beat the Natchez, that's over, Um, you know, on to the next thing, but they're dealing with Uh, a war that they didn't really win. Um, They enslaved a huge number of Natchez people. The Natchez have been largely dispossessed from their homelands, but this same system of multinational settlements and refugee acceptance that had enabled the creation and the thriving of many of these smaller native nations allows many Natchez people to find sanctuary elsewhere in the Southeast again. So many Natchez go East. They seek refuge with um, Chickasaws, with creeks. Some of them end up with Cherokees, um, All the way further east. And so it's not like the French can really claim victory. Um, More significantly, the people who actually won the Natchez War and who were militarily dominant throughout are the Choctaws, who by this point in time, the 1730s, are absolutely the dominant political power in the region. And so in the 1730s, the French are feeling like they've just been beat up by the Natchez. They're not especially powerful in the region. They're being bullied by the Choctaws. They've just bungled in the late 17th and early uh, through like the 1720s, a series of uh, conflicts in the Great Lakes region with the Meskwakis, what we've called uh, historically the Fox Wars. Um, And so basically the French Empire throughout Illinois and Um, the lower Mississippi Valley is looking weak. It's looking disorganized. It's looking like not really good military allies and the French are getting a bad reputation among their most vital native allies. So in the 1730s, as a, a large French colonists in the sort of American interior are feeling tremendous pressure to, um, restore their image as good neighbors, um, and as powerful, you know, colonial, um, uh, influences like that would be appealing for native people to ally with. And so they decide in the 1730s to pursue war with the Chickasaws who are historically enemies of the Illinois, who are another really important partner of the French and who also are harboring Natchez people. And rather than understanding the political system that prioritizes offering sanctuary and refuge to native people in crisis, um, the French decide that they're going to seek out, hunt down and annihilate all of the Natchez. And this will give them the political victory that they need. And this goes dreadfully for them. Um, Chickasaws really valiantly defend their homes in 1736 um, and in 1739. And in effect, this super bloody war, I mean, it generates a lot of enslaved Chickasaws. It causes enduring conflict within Uh, the lower Mississippi Valley, it further tarnishes French image um, as really bloodthirsty and very bellicose people. uh, I mean, by the perception of native folks and the Chickasaw Wars bleed over into a very brutal uh, conflict um, among Choctaws, the Choctaw Civil War, uh, which basically uh, it's 1747 to 1750. Um, And this is, uh, this is in part due to economic shortages and, you know, factors of uh, supplies and pressure that are coming from Europe. But I think what's really important to understand is that France's very aggressive pursuit of Natchez people um, into Chickasaw territory and their refusal to uh, accept native norms of protecting refugees leads part of the Choctaws to get really frustrated um, with the French and to basically decide that this, this is not, um, not reasonable and not a not a kind of ally that they want. Um, Western Choctaws, which is just one of the divisions of Choctaws, uh, decide they're better off allying with the British than dealing with the French. I mean, both because of trade shortages and also because of their terrible policy towards the Chickasaws. And this again leads to a super bloody conflict in this era, um, the the late 1740s, that spills over into French colonial settlements like near Mobile. Settlers in Mobile are terrified of marauding and attacking Choctaws. The tolls of this war for Western Choctaws are catastrophic. And so kind of writ large, you can think about this period between 1729 and 1750 as a series of the French colonists getting overly ambitious, trying to win some military victories and trying to assert dominance in a way that just continually backfires, has catastrophic tolls for native people and really leaves uh, even their closest allies with kind of sour relationships with the French government by mid-century. And where I think that this is super important is if we often, in early America, talk about the importance of the Seven Years' War um, as it's, its lead up to the American Revolution. From the vantage point of Southern Louisiana, France's conduct and this series of conflicts that are all connected between the Natchez War, the Chickasaw War, and the Choctaw Civil War really cut out the the legs from under um, French Choctaw French and Choctaw alliances, as well as any hope of um, peace and, you know, kind of good relationships between the the Chickasaw's and the French. And that means that they're rolling into the seventeen fifties and seventeen sixties, the Seven Years' War, in a position where their their native allies in the South are not as committed as they would like them to have been um, to fighting out this 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 long war. So it yeah it kind of sets them up for for failure
0: sure so so in the interest of i want to be respectful of your time and then kind of in the interest of landing this plane um i'm gonna try and wrap the last few questions into simply just asking you um in terms of these imperial power shifts that we're we're mostly familiar with the seven years war uh followed by the american revolution and then american settler colonial expansion westward um, what is all of this? What, what, what do these important big shifts look like from, uh, the small nations? Um, how do, how do they fare? How do they experience these mega, you know, sort of epical shifts that happen one after another, um, in your last three chapters here?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that the, there are a couple of kind of, you know, to peg to the big, big events, the, um, the post Seven Years' War in the Lower Mississippi Valley is actually in many ways a return to and another high point of native power. If I argue that following the Natchez War, the French once again realized that they need to be dependent upon their smaller nations, allies, and so there's sort of a revivance of this interdependent model of small nations in the French Empire in the 1730s. Um, This really actually hits its high point in the 1760s, only not with France. So when France leaves Louisiana, it cedes its territory. The western half of its territories um, west of the Mississippi River go to um, Spain. Britain gets the the eastern portions and what's British West Florida. And this creates an international border right along the Mississippi River. Many Native nations are able to exploit this border and the two new Um, weak colonial empires. There's not all that many people in um, Spanish Louisiana or in British West Florida. Um, Actually, in 1763, when the French leave, there's only 4,000 French and 5,000 enslaved Africans uh, in the region, there's still about 7,000 petite nations people, as well as 25,000 um, uh, Native Nations writ large. So there's still there's still a demographic um, minority, and so the 1760s allows Native people. Uh, from smaller Native nations to take advantage of access to both the British and the Spanish Empire, and to both play these powers off of each other, um, as well as to rebuild economic relationships with two sets of empires. So it looks a little different than the story we sometimes tell about fall of power for Native people in Eastern North America after the Seven Years' War. The American Revolution does come to the Gulf Coast, as Kathleen Duvall has so um, compellingly Uh, written about. But for the small nations, the real transformations are actually in the 1780s and 1790s. And this is the huge migration of Native peoples, I'm sorry, not of Native peoples, of settlers, um, uh, American settlers into the lower Mississippi Valley following the American Revolution. And so I argue that by the 1780s, this is the real point at which Native nations power and their hold on their land begins to slip. There's points where French boosters again, wanna say, oh, Native people are becoming irrelevant. They're dying off in the 1720s. It's really not until the 1780s that small Native nations can no longer militarily compete um, with just the explosive population of American settlers that arrives in this region. So In the 1780s and 1790s, we increasingly see these small nations, again, relying on these systems of refugee diplomacy and multinational settlement as they're pushed off their homelands near Mobile, near New Orleans, increasingly even those who are living along the Mississippi and Yazoo River, all of that land. We think about, like again, canonical events, 1793, the cotton gin. This is kind of the precipice at which this part of the South is transforming into the cotton kingdom um, with the rise of American settlement, that kind of end of, um, or approaching the end of Spanish control of Louisiana. After the American Revolution, of course, the British leave West Florida and that becomes, you know, sort of uh, U.S. controlled territory. But this whole whole region is absolutely transformed by the influx of, of American settlers. And so by this point in time, the story of these really powerful native nations who are shaping economic networks political decisions french alliances and the geography of the french empire and then of spanish and british political making they become really marginalized within their own homelands um And we see a similar kind of phenomenon in the 1790s where American settlers are saying the lands are about to be vacant. The native nations in this region are dying. They're vanishing. This land is fruitful. It'll be open for, you know, cotton plantations. Um, and in this case, uh, native people really are being pushed off of their land and made marginal, um, within their homeland. So it's almost not so much that they're dying is that the demographic balance just goes completely haywire with all of these, these influx of, of settlers who don't see any, um, future for native nations. And I will just say that a key part of this too, is the sort of American racial ideology that Mm -hmm. imagines native people as primitive, vanishing, destined to either be bled out, um, by reproduction outside of their nations, that kind of insidious logic of blood um, blood quantum for Native people saying that if you intermarry and reproduce with people outside your nation, somehow the next generation of kids will be less Native than their parents, um, which of course does not make sense for a region that has thrived um, and people that have remained powerful by bringing outsiders. Um, but this creates a, a narrative that says that um, you know Native people are are vanishing from the region. And I think what's really important to understand here is that we often think about the early 19th century um, as this period gearing up to Indian removal in the 1820s and 1830s across the Southeast. Native people or Native nations, um, these small nations in Louisiana mostly didn't suffer the same kind of single formal removal to Oklahoma, um, like the things that shaped my, my nation's experiences from Illinois. Um, instead, they were gradually dispossessed and marginalized within their homelands. And this same rhetoric of Native people being primitive, unable to exist in modern society, unable to advance, um, led Native people to become marginalized and pushed to the bayous, the backwaters, the edges of Louisiana, in some cases into Texas, um, or on the kind of outskirts of, of New Orleans. Um instead of being sort of corralled writ large and shoved to Oklahoma, and this is important because this means that these Native nations were able to remain in their homelands, yes, but they don't have treaties. Most of them did not have treaties in the same way that federally removed Native nations do. And so that has really limited their political rights and visibility kind of moving forward into the 19th and 20th century. Um, so the book actually, because of this, you know, opens and ends with a focus on, federal recognition and these narratives of disappearance that have really, I think, bungled the way we've understood the past and the importance of these nations in the historic period, as well as the seeming anomaly of their continued presence of the many of the descendants of these smaller nations in Louisiana, Texas and Mississippi today
0: yeah to your point there about survivance and not disappearing um i just got finished mentioning to my u.s history survey students the the case of yielded john charles louisiana which is of course been inundated in large part due to climate change and 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 other factors um but um, yeah so, so to to wrap things up um now that we've discussed the great power of small nations can you talk about what the future might hold and uh perhaps recommend a a new book in Native American studies that you think listeners should pick up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I will I will also just plug that I think if you're interested in native history and climate, I think really paying attention to what's happening with Il Jean Charles, which is um, that community is right next to Poinachan, which is the community that I worked with um, on this book, um, and that sort of grounded my experiences both as a researcher um, and as kind of a someone invested in the sovereignty and contemporary rights of Native nations. Ildijan, Charles, and Poinachan are both facing catastrophic climate change in their homelands, and they're both not federally recognized, in part because of the way that this history of movement migration um, flexible political boundaries doesn't match up with federal recognition policy. Like it's hard to square these two, you know, contemporary policy in this historic past that emphasizes the importance of change, adaptation, um, and incorporation of outsiders. Um, but I think that the paying attention to the climate crisis in Louisiana and how Native people are really on the front lines is is vital, so I I really appreciate you um, bringing that up. I absolutely love um, Brooke Bowers' Becoming Catawba, which just came out as well, and it is another um, Southern Native history. It's it's great. It's a really um, savvy gender history, and Brooke is herself Catawba, so she's actually she's writing about her own people and using her own experiences and her family memories to tell this story. Also, another story of survivance of a smaller Native nation that remains in the southeast, evades removal, endures, and the way that women's leadership and political power um is super important to understanding that story uh, Catawbas are in South Carolina so it's a it's a different a, a different story but I think really speaks to the the southeast um, writ large um, I am uh for what's next I'm now as I, I think you mentioned at the beginning I'm currently working with my own tribal community the peorias and our sister nation the Miami's both nations are in northeastern Oklahoma today um, We were originally uh, both from the Midwest, got removed. And we're working on a project that's designed to support the language and cultural revitalization work that's been ongoing in both communities. Uh, Many of, uh, at least for Peorias, I'll speak for Peorias, my great-grandmother and many of our community went through um, boarding schools in Oklahoma to be assimilated and re-educated. And so the language was really forcefully stolen in the 20th century, as were a lot of the kind of cultural practices. And so we've been collaborating with each other. We're hoping, we're working on forming partnerships With the Kay Branley, which is in France, to both um, really do a deep dive study in um, French and Peoria and Miami relationships in the 17th and 18th century, but also in the ways that hide painting and the kind of art that was exchanged through these cultural partnerships um, holds stories, holds pasts, and holds um, information about Peoria and Miami histories and cultural values that we can use to kind of revitalize um, storytelling and knowledge keeping in our contemporary communities. So I've been lucky to participate in um, some hide painting workshops to work on revitalizing these practices within my own community this summer. And we're hoping that this can really buttress the the work of the Peorias and the Miamis to um, rebuild their their communities uh, and cultures and serve our our contemporary nations so as you can hear i've kind of got you know one foot in the 17th century and one foot in the (laughs) 21st and everything which i think is definitely the way to do it so
0: it sounds like fascinating work uh elizabeth ellis it's been a pleasure thanks so much for your time
1: thank you so much i really appreciate it it's been a pleasure to talk to you this afternoon john